Today's passage is from Luke chapter 16, all of Luke chapter 16. Um, You can follow along in the Pew Bible, or it should be right behind me. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, Have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides, all this between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. 
But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. I wanted to... Um, we've had so many of you bring meals for us last few weeks and clothes for our, our little guy. And uh, it's been such a gift uh, because we've also all been sick for the last three weeks. And so not having to make a meal almost five nights a week has been such a gift. So thank you again for loving us in the way you all have. Um, and I, I love you all a lot as well. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, it, it's just a privilege to gather with brothers and sisters, a foretaste of, of the great throng that surrounds your throne for all eternity. And God, your word is good, and it is um, encouragement to our souls. Lord, give us hearts that receive what it is you want to say to us. Give us a fire in our bones to live our lives for your glory and for your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, when I was um, dating and engaged to Marika, my wife, I lived in Washington, D.C., and I had two financial goals during that season. I wanted to save up for an engagement ring, because I knew pretty quickly that I wanted to marry Mariko, and I wanted to save up for a honeymoon. I wanted to be able to buy a ring that my wife would like for the rest of her life, and I wanted to be able to afford a honeymoon that would create memories for the rest of our lives. The problem was is that I was working for a nonprofit, making almost nothing, living in one of the most expensive cities in the world. Plus, I had never been a saver. My whole life, I would make money and spend it. So my first job, I was 12, picking strawberries at a berry farm, and I worked through middle school, high school, graduated high school with about $100 in my bank account. So I just never knew how to save money, and then all of a sudden, I'm making nothing and trying to save up a couple thousand dollars to cover a ring and to cover uh, a honeymoon. But I had a goal. And so because I had a goal, all of a sudden I was thinking intentionally with my money, and, and it was amazing the frugality I was able to accomplish. So for about nine months, I lived on $25 a week in food. I ate oatmeal for breakfast, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunch and for dinner. And then I would buy like, bags of frozen vegetables so that I wouldn't die from malnutrition. And that's what I ate for nine months. Um, I didn't go anywhere or do anything that cost money. I got rid of my smartphone. Uh, I, had an, I had like an iPhone 3, an old iPhone. I got rid of that, got like a flip phone. I just was, I was figuring out every way that I could to pinch pennies. And it was amazing. Once I started thinking intentionally with my money, once I started thinking strategically, it was amazing how much further a very little bit could go than I'd realized. And I was able to buy Marco an engagement ring, which she still likes almost nine years later, and um, afford a honeymoon, and then I also have a little bit extra for savings. And it was all because I became very intentional. Now here, there's a point to this story. In Luke 16, which is a big chapter, the overarching point is that Jesus wants us to use our resources, our money, with the same kind of intentionality but not use it to save up money for an engagement ring or to save up money for vacations or whatever, but to use it for his kingdom in view of eternity. 
but to demonstrate the same kind of intentional urgency and strategic thinking that I demonstrated in those nine months of, of engagement. So to give you an outline of where we're going is in, again in this chapter, first point is the steward. And when I use the word steward, it means to use your money, invest your money, spend your money. Steward in view of people. Steward in view of God's reality. And then steward in view of eternity. Now we're continuing again in Luke. We're in this section, discipleship. Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. It's coming closer and closer. And so he's preparing his, his disciples for when he will die on the cross and then ascend to heaven. Um, what does it mean to be his follower? There's a, a greater urgency to that question. And so he begins, a couple weeks ago we looked at, it begins with telling us to count the cost. Following Jesus isn't a cupcake. It's not a walk in the park. It's gonna take sacrifice and suffering. Make sure that you've counted the cost. And then last week, we saw that God is a God who seeks out the lost and welcomes the prodigal. And he calls us as his followers to likewise be those who seek out the lost and then welcome the prodigal. And then today, we're looking at money. And I wanna address the elephant in the room and that we all get weird when you talk about money. I remember when I was at Sojourn, they did a series on giving. And I agreed with everything they said and I still felt weird. Like, don't tell me what to do with my money. We just get weird when we talk about money. Um, as a pastor, I don't particularly like preaching on money, um, but we're committed to expositional preaching. And one of the benefits of that, as opposed to thematic preaching where you're like, I'm going to preach on God's love or whatever, six principles of marriage. One of the benefits of expositional preaching is that I have to preach what's there. And it doesn't matter what makes me comfortable or uncomfortable. So I'm just going to lay that out. Yes, this may be uncomfortable for some of us because we're all weird about money, and that's okay. These are the words of Jesus. And so we're going to try to receive them as best we can, understanding that I didn't write this. I'm just trying to explain it and apply it as faithfully as, as I can. So that's, that's my caveat. Okay, let's explain this parable. Um, so our three points kind of break down into the three main sections of this chapter. So um, stewarding in view of people is going to cover verses 1 to verse 13. Now, if you read any commentary on these, they'll tell you that this parable is parable of the dishonest managers, one of the most difficult parables to understand in all the Gospels. And this is one of those parables that you'll read it on your own, and you get to the end and kind of scratch your head, and you read it again, and you say, I don't know what this means, and you move on. Because <laughs> it's just confusing. There's parts of it that don't make sense. There's parts of it that just seem wrong, like Jesus is commending sin and dishonesty. And so we're going to try our best to understand it, understanding that we're doing a flyover. So there's questions I'm not going to be able to answer. But at least the main point of it is pretty clear. Um, even if we may not fully be able to explain all the nuances and all the questions. But anyways, explain the parable. So we have a wealthy man who owns a lot of property. He owns so much property that he has to hire someone to manage it for him. And typically at this time, if you were kind of this wealthy land-owning person, um, you, would, you would own a lot of agricultural land, and you'd get tenants to farm your land, and the, what they would pay you is a tithe or a rent of their produce, which is why when the manager goes and he says, you know, what do you owe? So I owe oil. Okay, well, that's like a part of the produce of what you're producing on his land. And so he has a manager who's handling all his land. He finds out the manager is mishandling his property, whether it's because the manager is incompetent or lazy, it's not clear. So he calls the manager to account. The manager can't give account, and so he fires the manager. But the important thing is he doesn't, it's not like a pack up your bags, go home. He first tells the manager, okay, you need to first put your books in order, and then you're fired. And so the manager, in kind of a fit of desperation, he's like, well, I need to provide for my future because I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too proud to beg. 
Okay, so he starts to call in the tenants. He says, okay, whatever you owe, subtract 40%, that's now your new rate. It's kind of like if you rent a house, you rent an apartment. If your landlord called you up and said, hey, your, your rent is now 50% of what you were paying. It'd be a pretty sweet deal. Usually it's the other way, right? It's always the other way. We're raising it by 10%. Well, imagine if they called you and said, we're lowering your rent by 40%. You could save a lot of money off your rent. And here we get to the first very strange part of this story in verse 8, first part, that the master hears about this. It says that the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. This manager is ripping off his master. Why is he commending him? Well, again, he's not commending him for his dishonesty. He's commending him for being shrewd. It's kind of like when your team is playing another team and the other team has a great play and like they're, they're the opponents. You're not, you're not cheering for them, but you've got I mean, to give credit where credit is due. And so the master recognizes what you did was pretty brilliant. And let me explain, and we have to explain why, why it was so brilliant, why it was so shrewd, okay? So, so the manager goes to all the tenants and there's no, the tenants don't know that he's going maverick. Like they think he's worked this out with the master. And so the manager comes and says, hey, you know, lower your rent by 50%. I've worked hard. I've convinced the master to do this. You've lowered your rent by 50%. The, man, the, the, the owner can't now come back a day later and be like, psych, sorry, nope, it's back up actually. Because for one, that would cause like mass unrest among his tenants. But two, it also he'd have to admit that his former manager pulled a fast one on him. Uh, my, um, we had old neighbors who, uh, I didn't know him very well, but the husband was an, like an orthodontist, no, not orthodontist, orthopedic surgeon. He owned his own practice. And they had a, a secretary who absconded with like $2 million. But they didn't tell anyone. They didn't actually pursue her because it would have been so embarrassing to admit to all their clients that we allowed a, a, a secretary to like leave with $2 million. So the, the master, the owner of this land, is, his hands are bound. He can't come back and say like, no, I'm gonna raise those rates. And now all these tenants are in the debt of the manager. So when he doesn't have a job, he can go and say, hey, remember when I was able to negotiate your rates 50% low? Well, now I need help. So that's why the master's like, you know what? That's a good one. I'm going to give credit where credit is due. That was shrewd. It was dishonest, but that was pretty shrewd. And here we get to the point, though, in the second half of verse 8, in the verse 9. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The manager is commended for being wise with his resources. He's preparing for the future. He's being intentional, creative, strategic. So he's commended for that. And then Jesus says, you know what? Oftentimes, the people of this world are a lot more thoughtful with their resources and their finances than my followers are. The people who made a lot of money, the people who devote their lives to money, the people who are of this world, a lot more strategic with their resources than Christians are. And that's not the way it ought to be. Typically, people who make a lot of money, not always, but typically they're pretty good with their money, which is why they have a lot of it. They know how to invest, they know how to spend it. They're wise, they're strategic, they think it through. Now, is Jesus therefore calling Christians to go get a financial advisor and be wiser with your money? This is like biblical, advi- you know, biblical financial planning 101. No. But what he's saying is as Christians, we should get the same kind of strategic, creative thinking about our resources, how we're using them, how we're spending them, as anyone in the world would, but we have a different goal. Because our goal isn't to amass wealth. 
Our goal is eternity, is the kingdom of God. It's to invest in the things that will last forever. That's why the end of verse 9 ends with, and then you, so that when it fails, when wealth fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Show the same kind of intentionality that people will spend on money, which will end one day. We'll all lose our money, whether it's through financial ruin or when we die. So take, spend the same kind of intentionality in how you handle your resources, but with a different view, that of eternity. Now, typically, when we think of how do we handle our money well, we think of tithing and supporting missionaries, and that's true, right? Please tithe, or our church will not meet. Support missionaries, or they can't go. But Jesus is so much more expansive than just tithing and supporting missionaries here. And we get to what I'm going to call the kingdom stewardship principle. And that's this. Jesus is telling us how to spend our money, how to use our money intentionally. He says, spend your resources, spend your money on people. We get that in verse 9. Now, the wording, again, this is one of the reasons why this is a hard-to-understand parable. The wording is weird. Don't let it throw you. This is one of those verses where if you look at different translations, they'll kind of word it differently in each one. But the, the point, I think, is clear. He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Okay, what does unrighteous wealth mean? I think he's just saying, look, use your secular money, quote unquote. Yes, it's not, it's not sacred, it's not pious. Use your secular money and use it to make friends. Not in, sense, not in the sense of like buying friends, but use your resources to invest in people, to care for people. Why? Because one day you will lose your money. It's not forever. Whether it's when you die or when you make a bad financial move, you're gonna lose it. And so use it to invest in things that will last forever in people. That's the kingdom stewardship principle. Spend your resources, spend your money on people. Something that's helpful to do occasionally um, is to look at your budget. So probably a lot of you have a budget. You're monitoring where your money is going, how you're spending it. Um, If you don't, that's a good practice to have. But look at your budget and then figure out percentage-wise how much of your budget is going towards people. Like specifically invest towards investing or caring for people. A really good way that we do this as Christians is through hospitality. It's interesting, in all the Gospels, they're all very um, persistent in reminding us that Jesus spent a lot of time eating meals with people. It's like, okay, I get it. Jesus liked food. He liked to eat with people. But there's an intention behind that, and that Jesus was consistently welcoming people through hospitality into his life. And so Christians throughout centuries had seen hospitality as a Christian virtue, as something that is fundamentally important to what it means to be a Christian, because God welcomed us unconditionally into his life. And so one of the ways that we mirror the gospel to people is we welcome them similarly, unconditionally, into our life. Not because they deserve it, not because we particularly even like them, but because God has welcomed sinners like us and so we welcome others. So what does hospitality look like? Well, if you have a home, you know, again, thinking strategically, thinking intentionally with our resources, our home is not just our kingdom. Our home is a strategic asset. We can invite people into it. We can extend hospitality and welcome to people that are probably pretty lonely. But I tell you what, if you have people over for dinner even once a week, which isn't that much, that adds up financially. 
So when you look at your budget, like, do you have a line item for hospitality? Is it a, is it a commitment? Because we want to use our resources and our finances and our money on people. We're going to spend it on something. Maybe you don't have a home, or maybe you live in a dorm room, and so you're like, I don't really want to invite people into my dorm room, and I understand that. I lived in a guy's dorm room for a while. There are other ways you can show hospitality. There's other ways you can invite people into your lives. Just go getting coffee with someone and asking them sincere questions. It's a way you can welcome someone into your life. But if you're going out for coffee once or twice a week or lunch once or twice a week, that's still going to add up. And if you're a college student, you probably don't have a whole lot of resources to begin with. But again, where are you spending your resources? You know, if we say I don't have money to invite someone over for dinner, but I have a gym membership and I have a Netflix account and I have a smartphone and I have an expensive car with high car payments, this is what Jesus is saying. You're not being intentional with your resources and with your money. The sons of this world are more shrewd and they're dealing with their own generations and they're dealing with their finances sometimes than Christians are. And I'll tell you what, if, if, if we step into hospitality, it's going to cost money, sure. But for some of us, especially for those of us who aren't on the high extrovert side of the spectrum, it's going to be the emotional cost of inviting people into the little bit of time that you have for yourself. You know, if you work full-time and you come home, this is my time. And if you start inviting people into that, you lose your time. And it's tiring. If you're a college student and you're like, I like to eat my lunch by myself, I have a little bit of time by myself, I don't want to invite someone into that. That's tiring. There's a cost to it. But that's how we invest in eternity. That's how we use our resources, which is not just money. It's also our time, our talents. It's how we use it in ways to honor God that invests in eternity. And here's the thing, guys. This isn't just a small matter, but this is something that reflects our deepest commitments. Because look at how Jesus ends his teaching in verse 13. He says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's a pretty black and white binary option there. You either despise your money and love God or you love your money and you despise God. How we spend our money, how we spend our resources, our time, that reflects far more about what we really care about than what we say we believe, than where we go to school, than where we went to school. Steward in view of people. Use your resources to invest in people. That is what God cares about. Second point, steward in view of God's reality. Look at verses 14 to 17. Let me read these because it's just a couple verses. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached And everyone forces his way into it, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So we find out that the Pharisees are taking offense with Jesus' teaching, and it's likely they're referring to verse 13, where Jesus kind of lays down the hammer. You either love God and despise wealth, or you despise God and love wealth. And and they're mocking him. The Pharisees are smart men who know their Bibles. They know how to rationalize their love of money and make it appear 
pious and religious and they can still love money and be good God-fearers. And so they're mocking Jesus. Jesus, you're so simplistic. As if really it just comes down to either love God or love money. There's many other options. That's a false dichotomy. You're being reductionistic. You're an ignorant teacher, Jesus. And they're ridiculing him. But Jesus gives, or it's not Jesus, sorry, Luke gives us insight into what's really going on and that the Pharisees were lovers of money. And so when Jesus says you're gonna love money or love God and you can't do both, he's hitting a nerve. So they're responding. And they proved to be the foil then for Jesus' second teaching on money. Again, the, Jesus, the, the Pharisees were smart. They knew their Bible. They could justify themselves to people. They could explain why, you know, the way they live, the things they care about, why that's okay, why it's still godly. So Jesus says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. You're able to fool other men because you're smart enough and you know your Bible's well enough, but you can't fool God. He knows the heart. He knows what you really care about. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Man, this is, <laughs> Jesus keeps bringing the heavy hammer. What is exalted among men is an abomination. Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't tell us what exactly he's referring to there. It's clear not everything that's exalted among men is an abomination. For we exalt courage and sacrifice and love and things that are clearly good. So not everything that is exalted in the world is an abomination to God. So what is Jesus referring to specifically? Well, again, keeping in context what we just talked about in the last, in, in, in the parable of the dishonest manager, I think what Jesus is referring to here is, is wealth that is not used to care for people. Again, that kingdom stewardship principle, use your resources for people. Wealth that is not used for people is an abomination to God. I think as is, is, is much as I can make sense of this passage, I think that's clearly what Jesus is referring to. Wealth that is not used to care for people is an abomination to God. And there's more evidence for that as well. He follows up on this teaching right afterwards, talking about the rich man, Lazarus. And the whole point of the rich man, Lazarus, is you have this rich man who's just gorging himself on his opulence and spending it all on himself while on his doorstep is a man who's starving to death. And it's very clear that in God's sight, that's an abomination. And so the rich man spends eternity in torment. Or then also Jesus gives this kind of cryptic reference, you know, the law and the prophets in verse 16. He says, in verse 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And okay, why are you pulling in the law? This doesn't make sense. But how does Jesus summarize the Old Testament law in Matthew and other places? He says, it's love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That summarizes everything in the Old Testament. So he's saying, look, you Pharisees are smart. You know your Bibles. You can rationalize away why you don't need to love your neighbor. But at the end of the day, the Bible's clear. And it will never go away. The word of God will stand. What he cares about is loving him and loving your neighbor. And if you're not doing that, it's an abomination. In, in, in this world, we... We just, we exalt wealth. We're fascinated by it. How the ultra-rich live. Think of how many movies are otherwise terrible movies, but very popular because they focus on the ultra-rich. It's like The Wolf of Wall Street. I couldn't finish it. It was so terrible and so crude. The movie was terrible. There was nothing in it that was redeeming, but it was about the ultra-rich, and so there's something fascinating about how people with tons of money live. Think of Crazy Rich Asians, or Great Gatsby, or all these movies that part of the reason they're so attractive is they're, they're about wealth. 
and we're fundamentally interested in wealth. Think of how we describe wealthy people. We say high, high society, high class, the privileged, the well-off. Sometimes in different political situations that, or, or, or climates, those can take negative connotations, but in the whole, those are positive act statements. And here's the thing. God is not saying wealth is an abomination. He's saying wealth that is used, wealth that is not used to care for people is an abomination. God's not fascinated by wealth. He's not impressed by what we're impressed with. He doesn't care if your bank account's huge or if you have a massive IRA, IRA that's the word, <laughs> or your investments or whatever in the ways that we are. He doesn't care if you own companies. We care about that stuff. God is far more impressed with the person, regardless of their resources, who's pouring themselves out sacrificially in service to other people. That's what God finds really impressive. That's what honors God. And that's what we should be writing movies about. Steward in view of God's reality. We find things impressive that God is not impressed by. So part of the call here, Jesus is saying, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Don't be impressed by just the ability to accumulate wealth and possessions. Again, what's impressive is using our resources, whether we have much or little, to sacrifice, sorry, to give sacrificially and care for others. That is what is impressive to God. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, this is like a, 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 a caveat under my second point, but I need to talk about verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. All of this chapter flows pretty obviously under the heading of finance and money, which is why we're treating it in one go. And then you have this verse on divorce. And it's just like, what is this doing here? How do I fit this into what Jesus is saying? It doesn't seem to really um, fit the place. But I'll try to explain, I think, how it, how it fits in. Now, if, if all you had in the Bible on divorce was Luke 16, 18, then you'd walk away thinking there are no biblical grounds for divorce ever. But of course, we have other places in the Bible, and so we have to read this in context of other New Testament teachings. And there are other New Testament places where it explicitly says that there are biblical grounds for divorce. Two would be adultery, infidelity, um, and abandonment. And I would also include, by inference, abuse. And the teaching of the Bible is that when, God, when people are married, it creates a bond that is indissoluble. It is one in God's eyes. It cannot be broken. But there are some things that are so toxic, so corrosive, so evil, that they have the ability to sever even what God has made one. And those would include things like adultery, abandonment, and again, that's why I would include abuse. I think a husband punching his wife in the face has to be something that's just so corrosive it's able to sever even what God has made one. But here, Jesus doesn't give those caveats. He just says anyone who divorces his wife is committing adultery if he marries someone else. Okay, so what's going on? Well, again, in context, what is Jesus talking about in this chapter? He's warning us against trivial uses of money saying use your money intentionally. Use it not just for pleasure and personal comfort and, and personal desire, but use it to serve others, to care for people made in his image. Use your money well. Well, it makes sense in a passage on the trivial use of money that Jesus would reference the trivial use of marriage. 
And so what I think Jesus is getting at here is he's, he's speaking about what we would call a no-fault divorce. Not a divorce that's, that's occurred because there's been adultery or because there's been abuse or abandonment, but a divorce that happens because one or both parties just says, I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to put in the work to make this relationship work. I want to date around. I want to find someone else. And Jesus says there just is no grounds for that kind of a divorce. And people may get no-fault divorces, and legally, that divorce may be recognized, but in God's eyes, they're still married. So if they go and marry someone else, they're actually committing adultery. They're not getting married. They're committing adultery because they are still, in fact, married to their previous spouse. And so some takeaways from that is be sober about who you marry. It's forever. Some of our college students who are not married yet or are engaged, that person, you will, you will bury them or they will bury you. There's no outs. There's no back doors in marriage. But the last thing I need to mention on divorce is that there is no sin, including divorce, including a no-fault divorce. There is no sin that places us beyond the bounds of God's grace and forgiveness. And that has to be said. There is no sin and all of heaven and earth that places us beyond God's grace and forgiveness. So second point, steward your resources in view of God's reality. God is not impressed by what we're impressed with. He's impressed with those who use their resources to serve others. Lastly, steward in view of eternity. Now again, I'm going to summarize this story because we're looking over a big chapter. But basically, Jesus is taking the principle of, of, of this kingdom stewardship principle, spend your resources on people, and, and, and now he gives us this like vivid parable image metaphor that's pretty alarming in some ways. So there's a rich man, again, he's you know, the ultra-rich of his time. He's spending his money on himself. He's gorging himself on opulence. And on his doorstep is a, is a beggar who's so poor that he starves to death. Um, and even the dogs show this beggar compassion, whereas this rich man won't. And then they both die, and their lives, their roles are reversed. And so there's much in the story. Again, we're doing a flyover. We can't talk about most of it. But the main point, what Jesus is getting at, is, is, is a lot of the assumptions of what we assume are great or worthwhile or noble or impressive, a lot of those assumptions will be reversed in eternity. And that's why Jesus uses people who are at opposite extremes of the socioeconomic ladder. He uses someone who's the ultra-rich, so again, it's funny, in our time, um, if you're very wealthy, you'll probably hire like a nutritionist and like you have your own personal gym and you'll be crazy fit because you can like hire someone to like do your diet for you. But back in those days, like where starvation was common, if you could, I mean, if you were overweight, that was a sign that you were wealthy because you could eat as much as you wanted. So here's a man who's just eating as much as he wants, gorging himself, just showing off his great wealth. And then at the other end, of the socioeconomic ladder is a man who, 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 who literally starves to death, who's so poor he cannot keep himself alive. And they live out a life, you know, at Lazarus, no one would have looked at him in this life and, and envied his life. No one would have thought, that's how I want to be. Everyone would have looked at the rich man and thought, man, he's got, he's got everything. And then in eternity, the roles are reversed. And the man who lived his life in opulence and comfort and privilege is now suffering and torment for eternity. And Lazarus, who spent this life in suffering, is now being comforted by Abraham himself. 
Their roles are reversed. And this points at the great foolishness of wealth, at least the way that we understand wealth in this world often. I mean, think of the trade this rich man made and how foolish it was. Yeah, he enjoyed a few decades of comfort, and now he's suffering for eternity. I mean, what is a, what is a couple breaths of pleasure and joy and comfort in face of eternity? That's a bad trade. It's funny, a man who's probably very good with money made a terrible trade when it really mattered. What is a vapor compared to eternity? That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18 that we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is not seen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is not seen is everlasting. What we see in this world is, is, is just a breath. It's fleeting. It'll be gone quickly. Some of you know that it, in a deep way in your soul. But it's easy to forget, and we think, man, I wish I had this or that or this, that, and the other, and we, and we care about things that are going to be in a junkyard in 50 years that will be dust in 100 years. But what is unseen is, is forever. That's eternal. That's what we ought to care about. So Jesus is saying, look, steward your resources in view of eternity because this life will be over very quickly and you'll lose everything anyways. So use your resources, use your time, use your money in view of, of, of what will be forever. Steward in view of eternity. Now, if we ended here and I said, okay, let's pray, amen, you're, you're dismissed, uh, there would be a great danger that we'll go out with the assumption that Jesus' main message to us is go do your duty and just do it. And that would lead to a lifeless legalism. Because here's the thing, we can sacrifice out of duty, out of a sense of I ought to do this. I see Jesus has said do this, I ought to do it. There's a, we can sacrifice, we can obey, and, and, and obedience out of duty is better than disobedience, that's for sure. But you won't be able to consistently sacrifice joyfully if duty is the main motive. The goal is not to sacrifice out of duty. The goal is to sacrifice out of love for who God is, for what he's done for us. And so there's a reason that Luke 15, we looked at last week, comes before Luke 16. Why do we sacrifice? Why do we give up what is, we think is ours? Why do we live in this way? It's because of who God is. That God is the one who left the 99 and he ran after you. We'd wandered away and, and, and were lost without hope, doing our own thing, and God came and found us. He's the God who welcomed the prodigal. We all squandered what God gave us again and again and again and again, but yet he gives us a chance to begin anew, and he welcomes us. Because of who God is, that's why we live like this. I read this great story about John Stott this past week. John Stott was um, an Anglican pastor, theologian in Great Britain, probably one of the foremost kind of thinkers, writers, theologians in the evangelical world in the 20th century, beyond a doubt. And uh, I was listening to an interview by a former um, research assistant of his named Corey Widmer. I don't know who he was, but anyways, he was a research assistant for about three years for John Stott. He was telling this story. He said John Stott was incredibly um, disciplined with his time. He did the same thing every day, and he was incredibly hardworking. And he'd spend mornings in study, 
And he just had this laser focus. And so every day at 10 a.m., because he was very, you know, kind of a man of, of, of patterns or a man of habit, that's the word, every day, Corey, his research assistant, would bring him a cup of coffee at 10 a.m. And, and he'd come in, and again, John Stott is just like lasering focus, doesn't even really realize he's coming in. As he puts the cup of coffee down, John Stott would almost kind of mutter under his breath, I'm not worthy. Every morning, he'd bring the cup of coffee, John Stott saying, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy kind of under his breath. And, um, and after a while, I began to annoy Corey. It sounded so pious and just fake, like, really? It's a cup of coffee. Really? And so finally one day, he says, you know, brings in the cup of coffee, sets it down. John Stott says, I'm not worthy. Corey says, well, sure you are. You're worthy. And he said, John Stott, at that point, you know, it was, it was like it was painful for him to, like, remove himself from what he was doing and he actually turned, he looked at Corey, and he said, Corey, you have not got your theology of grace right. Corey responds, it's only a cup of coffee. And John Stott says, dear Corey, it's only the tip of the wedge. And what John Stott meant by that is that grace, even in a cup of coffee, is just the tip of the gifts that God has given us. Grace, when we think of grace, we're a gospel people, a grace, good news-centered people. And, and that means first and foremost that God has forgiven us of our sins and made us his own. That's true. But grace finds its way through all of our lives. That we begin to see that everything is grace. Everything is gift. Everything has been given to us. Even down to the cup of coffee may not seem like a big deal, but it's just the tip of the wedge, the tip of the iceberg of what God has given us. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Fundamentally, everything we have, we may think, oh, I worked hard for it, I did what I had to, but you didn't work for your brain or for your abilities or for your opportunities or for your family or for the context you were born into. Everything is gift. Everything is grace. And it's interesting because consumerism, which is so rife in our culture, consumerism whispers in our ear and it says, you deserve this. It says, you are worthy of whatever you have. But grace says, no, everything is gift. Everything is grace. We are not worthy of any of it, but God gives it to us. And so if you could sum up Jesus' teaching on money, it'd be this. Beloved, you are... You were the prodigal child that God welcomed back with complete and unconditional forgiveness. So everything you have is by grace. It's all gift. So use it, invest it, and steward it accordingly. To God be the glory. Let's pray. God, I pray that um, what I have said this morning will have been true, and if it's not, may it fall to the ground and may it not be remembered. But God, if it is, may we live knowing that everything we have is grace. The provisions you've given to us, the family you've given to us, the bodies you've given to us, the capacities and abilities and talents, it's all gift, it's all grace. We don't deserve any of it but you've given it to us lavishly. May it lead to deep thankfulness. 
May it lead to a stewardship of what you've given us that reflects eternity far more than the cares and the expectations and desires of this world. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.